Hello, everyone, and welcome to the United City Greensboro podcast, a church in the heart of Greensboro with a desire to practice the way of Jesus for the renewal of all things. You can learn more about our community at unitedcitygso.com. Enjoy today's teaching. As we have been trekking through this I Am teaching series over the last few weeks, looking at the seven claims that Jesus makes about himself throughout John, simultaneously, there have been specific miracles that Jesus has done that have run parallel with these statements. Just as there are seven I Am statements, or seven predicate claims like we've talked about, there are also seven miracles recorded, specific miracles or seven signs all throughout John's gospel account. If you read John, you come to realize very quickly he's very thematic in his writing. He's not just recording events in chronological order like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He really is trying to emphasize a certain theme. And in John chapter 11, we see only the second collision of statement as well as sign. Does anyone remember the first collision of statement and sign that happened together in the same story? Does anybody remember? What was it? The very first one we've talked about in the I Am, the collision, it was week one. Bread of life. Yes, Jesus feeds the 5,000 or 10,000 or 15,000, however many were there, as well as proclaiming, I am the bread of life. And the story of Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead, which is where we are today in John chapter 11, is the second collision and is one of the most notable of all of the Jesus stories in the gospel narrative. And it happens to be the final sign of the seven before Jesus' own resurrection. So there's seven I am's and seven signs all throughout John's gospel account. The statements, friends, reveal to us who Jesus is, but the signs confirm who Jesus is. Jesus always backs up his claim. His actions always confirm his statements. And these statements reveal Jesus to us, but the signs confirm Jesus to us. Not only is this story that we're going to look at today one of the most notable, but it's also one of the longest and most detailed of Jesus' stories. It's roughly 45 verses spanning four days. And to put that into perspective, the feeding of the 5,000 was only nine verses and was essentially just one afternoon. Now, do you remember growing up? Maybe you don't remember this because you're too young to remember this. But do you remember uh, VHS tapes that were so long or movies that were so long that there was actually two VHS cassette tapes in the box? Has anyone seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston before? That movie lasts for an entire, like, week, honestly. Does anyone know the longest movie made in Hollywood ever of all time? Does anyone know? Just if you had to guess. I didn't know the answer. I saw it this week. It's Cleopatra. Who wants to watch Cleopatra for four hours and 15 minutes? Like, that's not me. Maybe for you, though, the most recent example of a long story was Avengers Endgame. It's like three hours and 10 minutes, and I could have kept going and kept going and kept going. I remember talking to a friend who was like, I thought Avengers Endgame was way too long. I said, what? Like, I rebuked him in Jesus' name right there. It's phenomenal. But this story with Lazarus being called out of the grave is one of the longest Jesus stories. And so what I want to do today is I want to kind of summarize the story of Jesus raising Lazarus. And then we're going to zoom in to key ideas within the story. Is that cool with you guys? All right, fantastic. So in John chapter 11, Verse 1 reveals to us that there's this guy named Lazarus who is sick. We're not sure what kind of sickness. He's just sick. And just so happens that Lazarus is a good buddy of Jesus. They're good friends. They're homies. They're tight. They're close. In fact, 
Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, send a text message to Jesus. And they're like, Jesus, the one that you love is not well. He is sick. And they're very specific in saying the one whom you love is sick. Now, Jesus has been spending time all throughout Judea, proclaiming the gospel of the the kingdom of heaven, as well as performing these signs, attending feasts in Jerusalem. But he's been kind of all over the place, and Lazarus is in a little suburban town called Bethany, right outside of the large city of Jerusalem, about two miles away from Jerusalem. And Jesus receives this text message or this word from Mary and Martha, and it just so happens that Jesus decides to stay where he is and wait for two days before heading to Bethany, ultimately leading to Lazarus's death of this sickness. And then eventually his disciples are like, what's going on here? They're trying to figure this whole thing out. And Jesus reveals to them that there's a specific reason why he lets Lazarus die. But then, after a couple days go past, they end up going to Bethany, going to this town, the suburban community outside of Jerusalem, and they show up, and Lazarus has died. He's been in the tomb actually for four days. And four days was a very specific number in the ancient Jewish world because it meant that his spirit had left his body officially. There was this idea of that at four days, the spirit was away from the tomb, and he was dead, donezo. Like, there is nothing coming back. He is gone. And he's greeted by Martha, and Martha's obviously distraught. The whole community is distraught, because again, this was one of Jesus's close friends. He's died. And Jesus has this exchange with Martha, and eventually with Mary, and then at the very end of the story, he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. And I love that in the text, the, the Greek alludes to the fact that not only does Jesus use a loud voice, to call Lazarus out of the tomb, but the Greek actually is megaphone. I think that's so fascinating that Jesus walks up to the tomb with a megaphone, so to speak, and says, Lazarus, come out. Lazarus comes out. People are like, yo, this dude is insane. Like, he just raised someone for the dead. There's also another group of people who end up going back and snitching on Jesus to the Pharisees. And they're like, no, we're not having this. And the story continues and eventually begins to move into the plot to kill Jesus. But that is the high-level story of Jesus calling Lazarus from the tomb. I want to read just a couple verses and zoom in on these um, for us today. John chapter 11, verse 21 through 26, in the middle of the Lazarus story. It reads this, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Of course, she probably had a different tone. I'm just reading the text, okay? Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the word of the Lord. I grew up in the church, okay? Confession, I did, all right? Uh, I'm a PK, so that means I'm a little bit messed up internally. I've been through a lot of counseling, a lot of therapy, um, but I spent my entire life growing up in the church. And if you've grown up in the church, you know there are some cliches out there that you hear all the time. One of those is uh, God is good. And all the time, God is good, right? Cliche within the church. Or here's another one. I'm too blessed to be stressed. But you're like, well, I must not be blessed because I'm stressed constantly. Yeah? Or here's another one. Let go and let God. But I'm like, what am I letting go of? Like, what am I releasing? I don't understand. Like, let go and let go. What? Like, what, what kind of advice is that? But there's another one that goes something like this. God is never late. He is always on time. (laughs) But really, though? But really? Is he always on time? 
Now, here's the deal. Jesus might be on time, but that brother is never early. (laughs) Never is Jesus early. Something I have learned in marriage and having a spouse is that when Jordan says that she will be ready in five, or let's say, you know, we say something like, let's, let's leave at seven. I'm assuming five is literally five minutes. Let's leave in five. Five means five. Or let's leave at seven, and seven is literally 7 p.m. But to her, it requires something on the end. And it's ish. You know what I'm talking about? Five-ish. Seven-ish. Like it could be five minutes or five hours. We don't know. That ish could be as long as it wants to be. Does anybody resonate with that? Any spouses resonate with that? Like I've just come to, I've come used to that. My, my wife's just not ever going to be punctual. Like it's just the fact of the matter. Sometimes she's late and she's like okay with it. But looking face value at this story in particular as we summarized it, Jesus is late. He's tardy. The bell's already rung. He's late to class. He's behind schedule. And you might even begin to think that Jesus is slack, lazy, and unmoved. If we read the story just at face value. If we look at verse 20, it says, When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Now remember, Jesus has heard about Lazarus being sick. He's even told the disciples that Lazarus is dead after he had gotten the message. So we know Jesus could have acted prior to this moment. But he eventually comes, and when Martha hears that Jesus is coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Now, the Greek word for went out to meet is the same used for when Jesus meets a demonic spirit in Matthew chapter 8. It has more of a face-off undertone to it than a mere greeting. It's kind of like, yo, meet me outside. Meet me outside right now. Meet me outside versus, hey, let's meet for coffee. Let's meet for dinner. Mm -mm, It's the first one. And I get this sense that that Martha's kind of like, I wish he would say something to me when he shows up. Like, you know when you're like rehearsing in the mirror what you're going to say to the person when you see them? I wish they would say that, you know, something came up. I wish they would, da-da-da-da-da. Like, you get this sense that Martha's not pleased. She's run out to come face-to-face with Jesus, to have this face-off with him. So it's not just a generic greeting. It's a meet-me-outside. We need to have a conversation. But then look what happens next. We just read this, but let's read it slowly and look at the text very clearly. Verse 21, Lord, 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 Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Now, un- I'm not sure I agree with this, but a lot of teachings I've heard on this passage, most pastors seem to present it as though Martha loses her faith. That Martha doesn't believe in Jesus any longer. I don't don't see that in the text. Despite the confusion, the anger, the disappointment, and the intense emotion specifically of loss, In Martha, they're all acceptable and validated emotions. She is still submitted and surrendered to Jesus as Lord. Because she doesn't just say Jesus. She specifically refers to him as master, as Lord. With all of the intense emotions of loss, she calls him Lord. Even if... She had lost faith in her brother returning. She hadn't given up on Jesus. In the midst of her loss, and more so 
in the midst of Jesus' supposed letdown of being late. She calls him master. She calls him Lord. She hadn't given up on Jesus. Martha exudes high emotional intelligence. I'm pretty sure she's gone through emotionally healthy spirituality and learned a lot from Pete Scazzaro. She has high emotional intelligence. She's experiencing raw emotion, but is also submitting those emotions to Jesus as Lord. She's feeling everything, but she's also submitting everything. Some of us feel everything, but we don't submit anything. Or some of us feel nothing and submit everything, but we have to be able to feel everything and submit everything to Jesus as Lord. She provides for us, I think, an excellent model to live by and follow regarding our emotional intelligence, regarding what it means to be healthy emotionally. So what does that mean for us? I believe that means that we need to take our quote-unquote if-onlys to Jesus. Don't run away from him with your frustration. Run to him with it. Take your if-onlys to Jesus. Run to him. Confront him. Bring it all. But don't run away from him. Don't run away with your if-onlys. Run to him with your if-onlys. Dr. Scott McKnight, who's a New Testament scholar, says Martha both complains to Jesus about what has not happened and trusts in Jesus as the one who makes things happen. Again, she calls him Lord, but even more so, she has this understanding that Jesus, if he had been here, the brother would not have died. Why? Because she knows what he is capable of doing because he's done it before. She's seen it. She knows it. She even says, I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. She complains to Jesus about what has not happened, but but she also trusts in Jesus as the one who makes things happen. I don't believe Martha lost faith. I actually think think that it's being strengthened in this story. Now, some scholars like to contrast and compare Martha with her sister Mary. And Mary, in the passage, stays at home. And this comparison and contrast also comes out of Luke chapter 10. We know the story where Mary sits at the feet of Jesus a place where she's going to find herself soon again in the story. And Martha in Luke 10 is up in the kitchen making a meal, you know, getting things pretty, lighting candles, cleaning up, Windex in the windows, getting things prepared for Jesus and his disciples. And Martha comes in and is like, oh, Jesus, why are you letting Mary sit in the room that's dedicated for men? Like, she needs to be in the kitchen with me. What's going on? And Jesus is like, no, she's right where she needs to be. She's chosen the better thing. And so we like look at that and we're like, yes, way to go, Mary. Like Mary's in the right, Martha's in the wrong. However, what we see here is a bit of a different twist on the disposition of both of these sisters. Martha is consistently the active doer. Mary is the reflective contemplative. Now, how many of you would say that you're the active doer, like in your life, like honestly, like you're an active doer, like you're like, let's get things done. There's not a lot of waiting around, like let's go for it, awesome. How many of you would say you're a reflective contemplative? You like to sit, you like to ponder, you like to think and maybe not move at all. I love the, 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 the parallel here in terms of personality of Martha and Mary because I think it provides for us a very oversimplified but generic look at the human condition. Some of us are active doers. Some of us are more reflective, contemplative. But here we see, I think, a twist on this dynamic. Many want to praise Mary at the feet of Jesus, but I think that we should praise Martha in this moment. She actively takes her pain to Jesus. Mary is much slower to do so. Neither are wrong. But just as in the Luke 10 story, in this case, Martha has chosen the better thing. In Luke 10, Martha's not in the wrong for actively trying to serve her master. Mary just chooses the better thing. Here, Mary's not in the wrong for being at home, sitting and reflecting. But Martha chooses the better thing. It took Jesus asking for Mary for her to come to him. There's a moment in the story where Martha goes to Mary and asks and says, 
hey, the master's here. He, he's asking for you. It takes Jesus's initiative, but Martha goes directly to him. Martha is tempted to be the busybody in Luke chapter 10, but Mary is tempted to be melancholy and depressed in John chapter 11. And I think, honestly, this can be the temptation of the reflective contemplative personality type. To sit so long that we internalize our emotions without expressing them and bringing them out into the open. It's where they kind of fester and they sit and it turns us into sometimes bitter individuals. Is it wrong to sit and think and reflect? No. But if too long, it festers and it grows and it builds and goes deep into us. But here I think what we see is Martha choosing the better thing. Now, what we are beginning to see here in this story is that despite for years being taught that Lazarus was the lead character of the story, he is actually an auxiliary character in the story. In fact, Lazarus doesn't even come out of the tomb until verse 43. And the story is 45 verses. So homeboy gets two verses, and that's it. And he says nothing at all. Which means that there is something, I believe, deeper happening here than just Lazarus coming back from the dead. There is something deeper here because John's highlighting way more of this interaction with Mary and Martha than the coming out of Lazarus. The question, however, still remains, and you might be wondering the same thing, why did Jesus let Lazarus die? How often have you asked the question in your own life? Why did you let so-and-so die? Why did he let his friends suffer? Why do bad things seem to happen to good people? Why? I think verse 4 and verse 14 and 15 help provide for us the answer to the why. Verse 4 of chapter 11 says, When he heard this, speaking of Lazarus being sick, Jesus said, The sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Verse 14, so then he told them, being his disciples, plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I am glad I was not there. At this point, I'm I'm questioning the integrity of Jesus. I'm questioning his character. I'm questioning his motives. But he goes on to say, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. We're beginning to see why. This is John connecting themes in his account, going all the way back to the very first sign in John chapter 2, which was Jesus at a wedding, at a party, turning water into wine. John chapter 2, verses 11 reads this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs, going back to the seven signs, through which he revealed or displayed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. For us to believe, we must behold his glory. We can't just read about it. We can't just talk about it. We must experience and encounter the glory of God revealed through the person of Jesus and now by way of the Holy Spirit. We have to encounter his glory. But we don't just behold his glory for the sake of some kind of rah-rah. Go, Jesus. You're the man. Keep it up. Keep turning that water into wine, bro. You know, keep healing the sick. Keep providing bread for everybody who's trying to eat. Keep raising the dead. That's not exactly what beholding his glory is meant to lead to. Beholding his glory is eliciting and calling for a specific response. That is to believe. All throughout the gospel narrative, we see this language of that you may believe. He's not just revealing his glory for the sake of doing a fun kind of magic trick. He wants you to believe. Eight times in John chapter 11, the word believe is used. Eight times. And never once in all of John's account does he use the noun form of believe, which is faith, or pistis in Greek. Instead, is always the verb form, which is pistuo, 
or to believe, which he uses two and a half times more than any other gospel writer combined. John's got a point he's trying to make. We're starting to get more clarity on the why. He wants us to believe. We want to behold his glory so that we may believe actively. John Tyson says, he, Jesus, cares about the act of believing, not the content of faith. Believing is active. It's constant. It's not just a a, a static sense of faith. It's a dynamic sense of believing. To believe is what he is after. And he is displaying that again in John chapter 11. Charles Blondin was the very first man to ever walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Quarter of a mile across Niagara Falls. Have you been to Niagara Falls before? Anybody? Niagara Falls? Yeah, very cool. Beautiful place. And in the late 1800s, this guy, Charles Blondin, walks across Niagara Falls. Crowds cheering, tons of people are around. They're going, oh, this is amazing. He then rides a bicycle across on a tightrope. He eventually, listen to this, he eventually takes a stove across the tightrope somehow, lights a fire, and cooks an omelet on the stove. It's amazing. Then he eventually takes a wheelbarrow carrying 350 pounds of cement across this tightrope. And the crowd is amazed. They're blown away at this guy. Honestly, this is insane what he is doing. But then as the story goes on, he comes back to one side and asks the question, Who thinks I can carry a person across this tightrope? And everybody's cheering, yeah, you totally can. And then he says, can I get a volunteer? And the cheering stops. Everyone cheers at the glory of God revealed in Jesus until he asks us, who is willing to sit in the wheelbarrow? We all rah-rah Jesus when he's doing cool things. But the moment he says, get in the wheelbarrow and come across the tightrope with me, we're like, no, 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 no. And Jesus is inviting you today in your life to get in the wheelbarrow, to believe in him. Not just having faith that he can do what he says, but putting your faith into him with the entirety of your human existence, mind, body, and spirit. Sit in the wheelbarrow. And some of us, for most of our life, have just been on the sideline, raw, raw on Jesus as he does magic tricks. But he's looking at you and saying, even today, get in the wheelbarrow. Let's go across. Jordan used the analogy at the very beginning of the teaching series about the chair. We can believe that the chair exists, but it's another thing. It's another step to sit in the chair with all of our weight. John's got a point. He wants us to behold his glory so that we might, what? Believe actively to engage the entirety of our body. The story goes on, verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Now keep in mind, this is popular Jewish doctrine in the first century and theology taught specifically by the Pharisees, rejected by the Sadducees, but accepted by much of Jewish people that there would be this resurrection of the body at the last day. So so Martha's got really good theology. She's spot on, okay? Jesus said to her, here he goes, I am the resurrection, and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Now keep in mind her disposition. Keep in mind her emotions. Keep in mind her feelings right now. Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe. The great tension of life for us exists in between the why and I believe. To live the human experience in its fullness is why. But I believe. Why did you let my friend die? Why did you let my sibling die? Why did you let my mom or my dad die? Why did you let my friend experience that pain? Why did I have to go through that? Yet, even though this happened, I believe. 
That is the tension of life. And we see this in Martha. Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Again, Martha chooses to believe in who Jesus truly is, even when her current experience says she shouldn't. Even when her story says she shouldn't. Why? Because Martha does something we all must do as human beings, submitting our story to a higher story. You and I must submit our life's narrative to a higher narrative. You must submit your story to a higher story. It's not that her story doesn't matter, but she finds hope by submitting within a larger one. Where you put your future hope determines how you live today. Where you put your future hope determines how you live today, no matter your subjective experience and story. So don't let your story be the highest story. You are a part of a larger story, one where we already know the end. The end that is new creation, that is renewal, that is restoration, that is ultimate redemption. Don't let your story be the highest story. Because when you do, let your story be the highest. It produces despair, disenchantment, and hopelessness. So remember, your story is a part of a larger story. Pastor Albert Tate says, stop allowing your timeline to dictate your disposition in this season. Don't allow your timeline to dictate your disposition or your character or your posture. He's not saying that we should reject our emotions and feelings. That's not true. But don't let it dictate your character. Don't let it dictate your disposition in this season. Jesus then makes this claim against the one thing that human beings haven't been able to figure out or conquer ever, death. Did you know in 2020, $6.4 billion was spent on cancer research? The Jimmy V Foundation has raised $290 million alone for cancer research. Cancer plagues the human condition. But people have spent years trying to figure out ways to prolong life through modern medicine and technology, specifically around this disease that is cancer. How many of you have a relative or a friend or a family member who's gone through cancer, who's had cancer? Yes, and some have beat it and some haven't, right? Cancer is this reality that many of us have had to face in some form or fashion. We as human beings have been to the moon We've invented electricity, built the automobile, developed robots, and engineered digital social networks that makes the world small. Yet no one has found a way to eliminate death. Mortality is inevitable. Death is the great equalizer. Death discriminates against no one. I remember seeing the news on January 26, 2020, that Kobe Bryant died in a flight accident in California. Kobe Bryant. People are freaking out. How could Kobe die? Think about all the influential people in the world. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, LeBron, Kylie Jenner, whoever. They all have one thing in common. They all will die. No matter how much money Elon Musk will ever accumulate, and he's worth $300 billion, he will die. Death is the great equalizer. I remember seeing pictures of body trucks in New York City during COVID and being reminded that mortality is inevitable for all of us. And Jesus here makes quite possibly his most radical claim, other than claiming he's God incarnate, by saying, I am the resurrection and the life. What Martha and Jews all across the ancient world saw as a single event at the end of the age, Jesus was embodying at the center of the age. Resurrection, friends, isn't just an event. It's a person. And Jesus is making that claim here. 
Resurrection isn't just at the last day, but is inaugurated in the person of Jesus. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says, Jesus invites her, being Martha, to look to the future. Then, having looked to the future, he asks her to imagine that the future is suddenly brought forwards into the present. I have this image for us to think about, the fact that Jesus, again, is, is God incarnate. So he's coming from the place of eternity. Okay, so let's look at this picture real quick. Not the body bags. Keep going. There's another image. It's like, I kind of designed it myself. It's got lines. Anyway, the idea is that Jesus has come from eternity. There we go. Come on. There we go. That's awesome. Yes. Better than body bags. All right. Jesus being God, he's come from the place of eternity, and he incarnates in the center of history, time and space. But he doesn't just come from time past. He also comes from the future because he's come from the place of eternity. So he's the future hope who comes in the middle of history. Jesus is the future coming into the present. And he is providing this statement that I am the resurrection. I am the future coming into the present. couple notes on resurrection briefly. The first thing is that resurrection is not resuscitation. Resurrection is not resuscitation. Anybody in the medical field understands what resuscitation means. Some of us also might understand what resuscitation means. And resurrection is not resuscitation. Resuscitation is bringing someone back to life who will still eventually die. That's not resurrection. Resurrection in the life is is life after life after death in the language of N.T. Wright. You catch that? Resurrection is life after life after death. So resurrection is not resuscitation. The second thing is that resurrection requires death. Resurrection requires death. And this is a very important note for us all to to understand and for me to make this morning, that Jesus Christ doesn't eliminate death. He defeats death. Do you understand that? Jesus doesn't eliminate death. He defeats death. What he does is he subverts it as a portal into life. He flips death on its head, and now death is no longer the end. It's a new beginning. It's a portal into new life and new creation. Death is not the end any longer because of the resurrection of Jesus. Instead, it marks a new beginning, but he doesn't eliminate it. He defeats it. He subverts it. He flips death on its head. But what strikes me most about this entire story as we move towards the end is what happens in between this miraculous claim and the miracle itself. Something happens between I am the resurrection and the life and come out Lazarus. Here it is. When Mary, we finally come to Mary's portion of the story. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. Remember I said she would come back to his feet again and said, Lord, just like her brother, excuse me, her sister Martha, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see the Lord, they replied. And here we have the shortest verse in all of the scriptures. Jesus wept. And it's as though you could have heard a pin drop in this moment. The climax or the turning point of this story isn't the claim. It is the compassion. The climax of the turning point of this story isn't the claim. That's true, and that's well and good. But it's the compassion. It's the motivator. It's the catalyst. It's what's undergirding all of what Jesus is doing. It's his compassion. Jesus wept, not because Lazarus died, because he knows the outcome. Jesus says this sickness will not end in death. He weeps because of the bitter pain this loss inflicted on Mary, Martha, and their friends. 
artist Makoto Fujimura says, Jesus is saying, you need my presence more than my miracles. Did you hear that? You need my presence more than my miracles. His resurrection and that miracle of resurrection in the person of Jesus makes his presence accessible across time. Something that we all long for. Unity with the transcendent. Unity with a personal God. And his resurrection and that miracle makes his presence accessible across time. And what I love most about this moment in this verse isn't that it's the shortest verse in the Bible, but it is a complete sentence. Meaning this moment doesn't get lost. Rather, it gets highlighted. And here's the thing. We don't know how long Jesus wept. It just says he wept. But I don't think it was quick. I don't think it just came and went. There are plenty of images and paintings across church history of this picture of Jesus weeping, sitting down and weeping. And I get the notion and the feeling that it's for a long time. And he's also part of the Eastern world, which knows how to lament, knows how to grieve. And I believe there is pictures. This is one in particular, James Tissett, Jesus wept painting that was from the late 19th century. This is a picture of Jesus weeping. And I get the sense he's been there for a while. He's been there for a while. James Tissett had a um, display at the Brooklyn Museum, uh, a large art museum in Brooklyn, New York, um, back in 2010. His series, The Life of Christ, was all throughout the museum. It's like 120-some watercolor pieces. And I read from the curator in talking about the um, experience of people going through this exhibit. And she said that women literally would weep and crawl to the next image. And men would take off their hats in reverence. Even just the painting elicits emotion. Jesus wept. Jesus sits and weeps, and we don't know for how long, but we know he's moved with compassion, friends. He doesn't just make a claim. He doesn't just raise a body from the dead. He weeps with compassion. He's deeply moved. Just as Jesus being the resurrection and life doesn't eliminate death, it also doesn't eliminate pain, sorrow, agony, and grief. In the words of the novelist and poet Frederick Buechner, resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection means that the worst thing is never the last thing. Resurrection means that your worst day is never your last day. It doesn't mean there's not going to be bad days. It doesn't mean there's not pain, agony, sorrow, and grief. Coming to the way of Jesus is not roses and butterflies. It's actually when you're able to experience a new sense of hope because of you, you know what is to come. Jesus feels the worst things just like we do. He experiences the worst things. They just don't have to be the last thing. In fact, because he subverts death, it is our death and brokenness that leads to new life. It is actually our brokenness. It's our ashes that produces beauty. I just quoted Makoto Fujimura, and I've gotten really into him um, over the last few years. He's a Japanese artist, and I've watched him do a lecture and a presentation on this ancient Japanese art form called Kintsugi. And Kintsugi is a Japanese art form of repairing broken pottery by mending the areas of breakage with lacquer mixed with powdered gold. And I have become so fascinated with this art form. It's about 400 years old. And to be able to see broken ceramics, broken pottery, made even more beautiful with gold. He didn't fix it, so to speak, or this isn't fixed pottery. It's mended and made new into something more beautiful. What if the tears of Christ are like the gold lacquered in our life that provides mending and wholeness, making us new? He doesn't just give a new piece of pottery. 
he mends us and allows our scars and our brokenness to actually be the places of healing and wholeness that reflect his glory the most. And would you not know that the liturgical color for the Eastertide season is gold? What if the tears of Christ are what bind the claim and the miracle? What if the tears of Christ are what hits the dry ground of our lives and brings forth a bloom? This is our life. Broken, fractured, but made new by the tears of Christ that lead him to the cross and ultimately result in resurrection life. Jesus desires wholeness, but it requires his compassion that moves him towards the cross to bring forth new life and wholeness. Juliette Liu says, we will not know the fullness of the statement, Christ is king, until we can experience him as the king who doesn't perch himself high above reality on a golden throne, but as the king who took on flesh, walked the earth, entered into our pain, and wept salty tears at the tomb of his friend. I'm gonna get the band to come up. And I just wanna sit today wondering what your if-only moments might be. What are your if-only moments? Or what are you waiting for Jesus to do in your life? What have you been waiting on? Where is it that you feel like Jesus' timeline is not in alignment with yours? Where is that space today? I want you to sit in that for just a second. Where are your if only moments? And what are you waiting for Jesus to do? Where you get a sense that his timeline is not right. Ponder that right now. And as you ponder, I want to remind you this. You and I don't just need a God who would call a dead man up from a grave, but one who would become a dead man in a grave, entering into the deepest pain, the deepest sorrow, the deepest agony. He didn't just ascend to heaven before the crucifixion. He went through the cross as a way to bring completion. And resurrection, as we've shared before, is just the first sign of new creation. But I recognize that a lot of us have pain some of us aren't even aware of in our life. We are numb too often in an age that seeks to find as many distractions as possible so that we don't come face to face with our own pain and suffering. I just want you to know that even at times where you're numb, Jesus is at the tomb weeping. Jesus is weeping at the injustices of our world, at brokenness. I think about the events that have happened in Buffalo over the last couple of weeks with white supremacy and the killing of 10 innocent black lives due to white supremacy and racism, and Jesus weeps. And Lord, we ask for mercy. We call for repentance. Think about our own lives and brokenness we feel. Parents that have lost their life. Friends that have lost their life. Addictions that we have seen and experienced. Addictions that we've had before. Harm that we've inflicted upon ourselves. Trauma that we've experienced. And we had no choice in the matter. Kids across the world that are trafficked forced into child labor. Refugees that are fleeing the Ukraine even to this day because of Russian invasion. Kids in wombs who aren't getting the chance to live. There is pain. Single moms living in poverty trying to just make it and not knowing how they're going to get to tomorrow. There's pain. We say, why, God? Why? 
here, my brother would not have died. If you'd been here, my dad would not have died. If you'd have been here, I'd never experienced that pain and suffering. If you were who you said you were, I wouldn't have had to experience that trauma. If you're truly good, God, why? Your timeline sucks. I don't think you are who you say you are. You lack character and integrity. You're not good. But he weeps. He doesn't combat our emotions and our pain. He weeps with us. And I know that in this room, there is a lot of pain and suffering, and we don't know why. what we do know is the end of the story and we are hopeful because of that we choose joy and we choose hope because of that but let me tell you something friends we're not just going to jump to the future new creation and go yes we know what's coming to the end we want to sit in our pain and recognize the grief among us and Jesus does the same thing Jesus weeps right now with you in your pain and suffering and with eyes closed in this space I just wonder how many of you right now are experiencing various levels of pain and suffering in your life loss if you would just raise a hand lift a hand this morning if you're experiencing pain suffering loss yes yes some kind of loss some sort of pain yes and I want you to know every one of you hand raised that Jesus is there just standing with you weeping and he says I've been there too I can feel with you I have empathy Guys, we don't just need a God who can eliminate death. We need a God who can feel with us.